Atari Bytes returns. That's right. That's right. Welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites is bad. My name is Bill. This is episode 331. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. And holy shit, before I go any further, those of you who have been sitting by your pod provider since the last episode, for God's sakes, go take a piss because it's been eight months and you're probably about to explode. Those of you who take your pod provider into the bathroom with you, you know what? Podcasters don't want to know what people are doing while they're listening to podcasts. We'll just move on. How you been, everybody? As I noted, it has indeed been eight months since the last episode of this podcast, and I am excited to be back. Back when I announced the hiatus last spring, uh, April of 2023, I promised that I would come back at Christmas time, and I did indeed fulfill my promise because I'm not stupid. Santa Claus is watching, and I gotta be on my best behavior. It is Christmas Eve 2023 as this episode is going out, so happy holidays, everybody. I hope whatever you celebrate, if you celebrate anything, that you are having a wonderful time. The world's kind of crap right now, so I hope you at least are having, uh, in your little part of the world, are having some good. So, cheers to you. So, the hiatus is over, sort of. The project that I've been working on that prompted the hiatus is not finished. So this is not a permanent break in the hiatus, but I was excited to come and do this, so I am. Uh, I don't know when the next episode will be. Uh, I'm not setting a regular schedule yet, which I know is kind of sucks for a podcast, but for now, that's kind of the way it has to be. So uh, there will be more episodes. I just don't know yet what the schedule is going to be. But you know what? Let's focus on today, because today we've got an awesome episode. As you know, uh, you long-time, long-time listeners, to the show. If you're a new listener, by the way, welcome. You've got a back catalog of 330 episodes to enjoy. But the last episode of the year, some of you know, is traditionally my you know, Christmas vacation episode, where I don't play a game. You know, I don't worry about reviewing a new game. I put away the parchment and the quill pen, which I use to craft the masterpiece. You know, every week of of a short story that I present, I just kind of relax a little bit. So that's what I did here. I enjoyed uh, a film, which is how I usually handle the last episode of the year. And uh, we'll get to that in a minute. But it has been eight months, so I I couldn't just leave you completely without a story. You've probably managed to stop having the nightmares and, you know, downing the Pepto-Bismol 
to get rid of the awful taste of the stories I, I gave you previously. So I, I feel like it's time to give you some of my creativity. So, guys, I, I, I wrote you a little poem. And, oh, you know, I'm a little out of practice here. But before we do any sort of creative endeavor, we have to play the creative endeavor intro. So take it away, Sean. It's story time on Atari Bites. Yes, it's story, 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 story time with Bill. All right, I wrote you guys a little poem. <coughs> the world's on fire. My old game console has just warmed. Here in this holiday season, we might struggle to find good cheer. Burl lives. Mariah hoped to hear. But broadcast news confounds reason. War, death, politics. Can we run? Look, the world's pain threatens to swarm. Our collective soul faces deep harm. Can we get in under the wire? Well, although our world is on fire, my old game console has just warmed. Bing, Dean, Darlene, Jingle Bell Dogs are barely heard over global din. Shut it out. Put a cartridge in. Atari has the catalog for what ails you, like Donkey Kong. Pitfall, Berserk, Oink, Galaga. Mad? Don't hit. Play Laser Blasta. Don't attack us. Get Yar's Revenge. Lock idiots in Space Dungeon. Feel joy, not hate. No mean Santa. Thank you. Thank you. You may send your words of praise to ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Yep, you waited eight months for that. I'm so sorry. So, here's the setup for this year's end-of-the-year film. It has been, you know, a whole, I don't know, five minutes since I've been back doing this podcast, so I'm pretty tired. So, we're going to watch a movie. Back in episode 329, we played the game Cookie Monster Munch for the 2600. Now, I couldn't find a Cookie Monster movie, sadly, but I did find one featuring another beloved denizen of Sesame Street, Big Bird. So, from 1985... We're going to check out the feature film, Sesame Street Presents, Follow That Bird. How many Sesame Street games have I done on the podcast? Well, Cookie Monster Munch wasn't the first one. There was also Oscar's Trash Race in episode 291, and there were two other Atari games. Big Bird's Egg Catch, which would have been a more fitting one for this episode, and Alpha Beam with Ernie. I was a huge Bert and Ernie guy as a kid, so I'm sad that I don't have that one. There were also plans for The Count's Castle and Grover's Music Maker, but they never got made. You know, as I was doing my research, eh, research, that's funny. I've only had eight months. I'd swear that I did Big Bird's Egg Catch, but when I scrolled through my list of produced episodes, I couldn't find it, uh, unless I just totally missed it. If somebody wants to point out that I'm an idiot, and when I did talk about that game on the podcast, uh, please do, and I'm going to feel bad. 
that, that I didn't use that as my setup for this movie. Follow That Bird has earned a 6.7 out of 10 on IMDb and a 92% Rotten Tomatoes score. Basically, the movie, obviously, focuses on Bidbert. He's living his happy little Bidbert life on Sesame Street, a social worker of some sort. I'll talk more about this when I talk about the specifics of the movie, but apparently Miss Finch, who's another bird, is some sort of social worker and is really convinced that Bidbert needs to be with his own bird kind and sets out on a mission basically to twist his wing to go live with a bird family, uh, specifically a, a family of dodos in Illinois. Interesting because the dodo bird, of course, has been extinct for hundreds of years, although if you read recent news, scientists are trying to clone it and bring it back, but none of that can help Bidbird in 1985. So Bidbird goes along because Bidbird's nothing if not a follower, but of course he's homesick for Sesame Street and decides, screw this, I'm going home. And then an adventure begins. The pop culture blog concludes that the film is not a masterpiece of cinema and not one of even one of the best Muppet films, both of which are true. But the blog says, it is a decently funny picture that doesn't talk down to the intended audience of little kids. I would argue that it tackles some, base, some heavier themes than you might expect if you had a cursory understanding of Sesame Street. There are moments of great pathos and humor throughout the picture. The AV Club says Follow That Bird gave Sesame Street loyalists, of which there were many, a chance to see all of their daytime TV friends out of their nests in garbage cans, walking around and navigating through cornfields and carnivals. It was to be a bid production and would, give, and would, given the show's popularity, undoubtedly yield a bid payoff. At least that was probably the idea. The movie, however, was a flop. It only made $2.4 million its opening weekend and quickly petered out in theaters. But in this reviewer's mind, it is a pantheon of cinema a big-screen adaptation of the small-screen world I knew so well. The reviewer praises the various cameos, which sort of are sort of a staple of any Muppet-related film. There are lots of parts that are fun and whimsical, and other parts are kind of crushing, including a bit where Bitbird has been captured by the Sleaze Brothers, dyed blue, and forced to perform as the Blue Bird of Happiness in a rinky-dink sideshow. Like so much Sesame Street produces, Follow That Bird is about finding oneself and learning to re revel in difference. Alright, well, after the break, we lay an egg, and it isn't pretty. A person I once knew, while complaining about someone she was arguing with, threw up her hands and said, he must think I live in a carnival-like atmosphere of glee. Upset as this person was, though, I always thought this sounded like kind of a cool state to live in. Well, I'm not there yet, but I've got a website, carnivalofgleecreations.com, and there's stuff on there, everything you can want, like the podcast Atari Bytes, featuring old games and original short stories that are pretty unrelated. And my other podcast, it's a podcast, Charlie Brown, covering anything and everything, in and around the iconic Peanuts comic strip. If the printed word is more your thing, there are books on there too, like the novel in the Saint Nick of Time and short story collections, Misery Banana, Hell Serial, and Second Duck on the Right. Want to know what else I'm up to? That's all there too. Carnivalofgleecreations.com. Everything you need. Glee not included.
all of us listening to this who are of a certain age, which is pretty much any age, unless you're a octogenarian, I think that's the right term, we all grew up watching Sesame Street, right? I am of the age where I was not the first audience for Sesame Street, but I was pretty darn close to the earliest audience, you know, in the era when there were only a few channels, children's programming, especially during the week, was on PBS. And I had a mom who stayed home with the kids while dad went off to work. So, you know, in the morning, dad goes off to work on a weekday and Saturday mornings, but I watch cartoons then. But during the week, he'd uh, go off to work. Mom would, because this is what you did, plop me in front of the TV with my cup of milk, I suppose. And uh, she'd go about her business, you know, getting the house cleaned or making the grocery list or whatever, because this was the era when that's what you did. And uh, I'd watch Sesame Street. And Mr. Rogers. But to my knowledge, there is not a, a movie starring Mr. Rogers. I know there is a Mr. Rogers movie with Tom Hanks, which is very good, actually. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about a Sesame Street film. Way back before they were thinking about doing a film, though, or even really knew what Sesame Street was going to be, uh, a woman named Joan Dance Cooney and a guy named Lloyd Morissette created a thing called Children's Television Workshop, which in 2000 became simply Sesame Workshop. Their whole goal was to elevate children's programming, to make it a thing that kids would enjoy, but also teach them something. And one of the first things they did was create a show called Sesame Street, and they invited this fairly unknown guy at the time, Jim Henson, a puppeteer who mostly at that point, I think pretty much had done commercials. I think he'd done a show called Sam and Friends, if I recall. I'm going off the top of my head on this part. His, his weird little creature named Kermit, had appeared on the Jimmy Dean show, but Jim Henson wasn't really Jim Henson like we think of him now. But he had these uh, puppets that he called Muppets, and Cooney and Morissette invited him to create Muppets for this children's show. Uh, and he did. They created a whole cast of characters, both Muppet and human. They had short films. They put a lot of humor into it and songs and cultural references of the time. And the show debuted on November 10th, 1969. People, for the most part, really liked it. A lot of people watched it. It was for decades on PBS, and I think it still is. But it's also basically been bought up by HBO. In more recent years, I don't want to get political here, but Republicans specifically have done as much as they can do in Congress to axe funding for PBS for reasons I don't totally understand, but that's the way it is. But PBS continues to survive though hobbled, and HBO several years ago stepped in to basically buy Sesame Street. Part of the deal was they run episodes on HBO, which is kind of cool in a way, because if you have the HBO app, you can go in and you can watch all of Sesame Street. One night I sat and watched the first, like, two episodes of Sesame Street, just because I could. Those first two from 1969, and it's kind of a kick to do that. Uh, and, and the show still airs on PBS as well, which is good because not everybody has HBO. And I feel like a show like Sesame Street should be available to as many people as possible. So the decades go by and the show becomes a cultural touchstone. Its cast of characters, particularly the Muppets, um, Cookie Monster, Oscar, Big Bird, Ernie and Bert, Grover, become references, beloved references, uh, sources of humor, parodies, stuff like that. Uh, oh, by the way, before I forget, if you're interested in the history of Sesame Street, 
I'll, I'll leave the history of the show here because that's not specifically what we're here to talk about. But if you are interested, go look for a book that came out several years ago called Street Gang, which tells you the full story of how Joan Dance Cooney and all the others involved in the creation of Sesame Street came to do that. It's a wonderful book. I totally recommend it. So over time, Sesame Street becomes so huge that somebody gets the idea, hey, let's make a feature film. So they do. What they come up with is a musical road comedy directed by Ken Quapus in 1985. Quapus is a pretty well-known name. In the 90s and 2000s, he did a lot of single-camera sitcoms. Uh, his feature films, other than Follow That Bird, include The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, and He's Just Not That Into You. His TV stuff was like Malcolm in the Middle, The Office, The Bernie Mac Show, Freaks and Geeks, stuff like that. The film was written by Judy Freudberg, who also was nominated for an Emmy for writing the home video production Elmo's World Wild Wild West, Sesame Street Presents The Street We Live On, and the Sesame Workshop comedy series The Upside Down Show. Uh, sadly, she passed away in 2012 at age 62 uh, from a brain tumor. The other writer of the film was Tony Geis, who also wrote something called, uh, who was also a staff writer and songwriter for Sesame Street, writing uh, things such as Don't Eat the Pictures, and also wrote for The Land Before Time in 1988 and was a producer and writer for the Don Bluth film An American Tale. He also passed away at age 86 from complications of a fall at his home in 2011. The producers were uh, Sesame Street creator Joan Dance Cooney and Lloyd Morissette. The film starred Carol Spinney, who was the, a puppeteer, the cartoonist, the author, the artist, uh, and a speaker on uh, many things, I guess, uh, most famous for playing Big Bird, who was a 8-foot, 2-inch, tall yellow bird for those of you who don't know and he was on sesame street from the time it began although his look did change over time a little bit he was always like an eight foot tall yellow bird but his specifics of his appearance changed a little bit over time he played big bird from 1969 until 2018 although i think towards the end it got to be a little physically demanding and as i recall i think there would be times when someone else would actually do the movements and spinny would provide the voice as i recall also in the film were Jim Henson, of course, uh, creator of The Muppets, Frank Oz, who now is more known as an American actor, puppeteer, and filmmaker, but he also, of course, was involved with The Muppets in all its iterations, and Star Wars, right? Yoda. Among his voices for The Muppets are Miss Piggy, Fozzie Bear, Animal, Sam Eagle, Cookie Monster, Burt, Grover, I mentioned Yoda. He also directed The Dark Crystal. The Muppet State Manhattan, Little Shop of Horrors, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, What About Bob, In and Out, Death at a Funeral, and a little bit of TV stuff. Among the cameos in the film that we're going to talk about here in a couple minutes are Sandra Bernhard, John Candy, Chevy Chase, Joe Flaherty, Waylon Jennings, Dave Thomas, who I think in the when I, in my notes here, and I'll probably do it as I'm talking, I kept referring to Bob McKenzie, although I'm realizing now that was the bit that he did with Rick Moranis, Bob and Doug McKenzie. He actually was Doug McKenzie, so if I slip and call him Bug McKenzie, or Bu Bug, Bug McKenzie, Bob McKenzie, uh, I apologize. The film runs 89 minutes. It grossed $13.9 million, which is roughly $36 million today, which means it took a bit of a loss, but, you know, it's still a film with the Muppets. I don't know how that compares to the other Muppety films. 
I'm guessing the other Muppet T films did better. Wikipedia tells me that this is the only uh, Sesame Street feature film to star both Jim Henson, who plays Kermit the Frog in the film, and Ernie, and Richard Hunt, and the last Muppet film to involve them uh, before their deaths in 1990 and 92, respectively. Fun facts. The voice of Miss Finch, who we're going to talk about, who's sort of the uh, antagonist in the film, was originally voiced by Cheryl Wagner, but then they decided they didn't like her voice, so they took out all her stuff and redubbed the character using Sally Kellerman. Originally, John Landis was supposed to direct. He had previously performed Rover in the Rainbow Connection finale of the Muppet movie, and of course he's directed lots of other things. He liked the film, but he dropped out because he had scheduling conflicts with his other film, Into the Night. Northern Calloway, who played the character David on Sesame Street, couldn't be in the film because he was banned from entering Canada, where the uh, production took place, because he had a criminal record in Canada. So that's unfortunate. Uh, lots of the other humans, they didn't really talk about the humans, but lots of the other humans from Sesame Street at that time appear. You've got Linda Emilio Delgado, who played Luis. You've got Loretta Long, who was Susan. Sonia Manzano, who played Maria. Bob McGrath. Roscoe Orman, who played Gordon. He was not the original Gordon, but he was Gordon at that time, and I think for most of the, the rest of the run so far of Sesame Street. Elena Reed, who played Olivia. And Kermit Love, who, actually I don't think was in the film, but he was uh, a designer for the film. In summary, the film we're about to talk about is the story of Big Bird being assigned to the Dodo family by a social worker working for the Feathered Friends as he soon runs away from the Dodos to get back to Sesame Street as he is searched for by the social worker, his friends, and two con artists. That would be Doug McKenzie, who I'm probably going to keep calling him because I never quite figured out what his name was in the movie and that guy's brother. Follow That Bird gets a 92% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, a 6.7 out of 10 on IMDb, and it is available for streaming. I watched it on Tubi for free. It's also on Roku for free. Apple TV has it for a few bucks. Amazon Prime has it for two or three bucks. You can find the VHS on eBay. It looks like for anywhere from 6 to $20. Um, there's always the weird outliers for, you know, it was $400 for this VHS. The DVD was also up there for anywhere from like 5 to 15 All right. Well, let's get on with it, shall we? By the way, most of the time when, do, when we do on Atari Bytes these year-end reviews of films, it's a really bad film where we can make a lot of fun of it, just to let you know. I wanted to do that here, but this film is really good. You gotta be in the mood to watch Big Bird and Friends run around and do stuff. And it's definitely aimed at little kids. But it's really good. I am well past my little kid era, but I enjoyed it. It's a good time. So, probably not going to make a lot of fun of this movie. Uh, although there are certainly things to make fun of. It's more a movie you have fun with than made fun of. So, um, sorry. Not sorry. Because uh, I had a good time. And I have a lot of affection for The Muppets and Sesame Street. So, sit back and relax. And uh, mostly, go watch Follow That Bird. And don't feel bad about it. It's a good movie. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please rise for the Grouch Anthem? No, no, no. With a Grouch Anthem, you stay sitting down. Down in front there. Now brace yourself, I'm gonna sing. Grouches of the world. 
lights Don't let the sunshine spoil your rain Just stand up and complain Let this be the grouch's cause Point out everybody's flaws Something is wrong with everything Except the way I sing <laughs> You know what's right with this world? Nothing. You know what really makes me hot under the collar? You name it. And the next time some goody two-shoes smiles and tells you to have a nice day, you just remember... Don't let the sunshine spoil your rain. Just stand up and complain. Just stand up and complain. Well, anyway, you've seen the best part of this movie, so sit back, relax, and have a rotten time. <laughs> So the film opens on the American flag, and then down in one corner, in front of the flag, is Oscar's trash can. I don't know why the film opens this way. Is there a time when opening the, a movie with the national anthem and a flag was, was a thing? I thought maybe they were doing a, a, a Patton thing. Doesn't the uh, George C. Scott Patton film open with Scott as Patton coming out on, uh, on camera in front of a giant flag? So I thought maybe they were doing something like that, but that's not really what they do. Instead, they just got Oscar backed up by a chorus of grouches singing what Oscar declares to be the grouch anthem. He comes out of his can, tells everyone, no, you stay sitting, because for the grouch anthem, you sit down. Now brace yourselves. Well, actually, I guess what happens is a voiceover, and I don't know who's doing the voiceover, says, please rise for the grouch anthem. And that's when Oscar comes out says, for, no, for the Grouch Anthem, you stay sitting. Now brace yourself, I'm gonna sing. And then he does. Basically, it's a song about how the grouches of the world need to unite. My favorite part was the Grouch Chorus, where like three or four other grouches come out and do backing vocals. And then uh, Oscar declares, well, anyway, you've seen the best part of the movie, so sit back, relax, and have a rotten time. All this reminds me, for no particular reason, and maybe I've mentioned this like when I did the Oscars Trash Race game, when I was a kid, probably right around the time I was watching Sesame Street, maybe I was a little older even than that, I'm not sure, I had an Oscar the Grouch alarm clock. And it was a, you know, a, a clock. I'm trying to think how to describe it. Not, it wasn't a digital clock. It was just a, like a regular a analog, I guess, clock. And then next to it, it had Oscar's trash can. And if you set the alarm, when the alarm went off, you Oscar would pop out of the trash can and he would go, okay, it's whatever time. It's going to be another grouchy day, so get up. It was awesome. Eventually it broke. I've been really sad. I've kept trying to spend the rest of my life trying to find one. But anyway, for some reason, this song reminds me of that. Now, as I've been talking, I did a very quick search. You would thought I would have done this before I started recording. At any rate, uh, my producer did a very quick search. And without digging into it too deep, apparently playing the national anthem before a film is a thing that happens. 
in some places, or at least used to happen with some regularity. So maybe that's why they're doing it here. I, I don't know. So the film proper opens. We see a quick animation of Bidbird using a, a pump, that, like a, you'd pump up a tire to blow up a giant W, and it floats up in the air. And we hear Bidbird saying, Sesame Street is brought to you by the letters W and B, which is a reference to the WB, or Warner Brothers, the studio that produced the movie. It's located in Burbank, California. It's a subsidiary of Warner Brothers Discovery. It was founded in 1923 by Harry, Albert, Sam, and Jack Warner. It was a leader in American film before diversifying into animation, television, and video games. And it's one of the big five major American film studios and is a member of the Motion Picture Association. We open the film proper on, like a, I thought it was a boardroom, like a big company boardroom. Maybe it's just a conference room. And these various birds, Muppety birds, are sitting around the table. Uh, they're all kind of chattering at once. And then finally this very regal-sounding bird at, at one end of the table beaks up. Need I remind you of our purpose? To place this bird with a nice bird family. Essentially is what she says. She opens a file folder, and we see a folder full of pictures of Bidbird doing his Bidbird thing. Just kind of you know, playing on Sesame Street. And this bird explains that Bidbird is only six years old and lives all alone. I don't know why this bird, who we're going to find out is the antagonist for the film, I don't know why she talks like this, but she does. So the other birds are looking at these pictures, and one of them kind of observes how sad Bidbird is queuing off of this notion that he lives there all alone. Another bird says, hey, he looks pretty happy to me. And there's some grumbling about that. They don't like that comment. Another one says, well, he must be with his own kind. I know just the family. Where does he live? And this uh, very regal sounding bird says, well, he lives on Sesame Street. One of the other birds just kind of sighs. Can you tell me how to get to Sesame Street? Cue the familiar tune, right? The Sesame Street theme. Can you tell me how to get how to get to, we know how it goes. So now we're on the very familiar Sesame Street, but it's not Sesame Street on a studio soundstage like we saw anytime we watched the show. They've recreated the street on what I'm guessing is a studio back lot somewhere. We're, we're clearly actually outside, unless they fooled me, but it sure looks like we're actually outside. But we're on Sesame Street, the 1985 version of Sesame Street, which was not my Sesame Street, by the way, but that's neither here nor there. We see that giant dog, Barfy. What's that giant orange and yellow, or orange and white dog's name? I meant to look this up. Barkley? Is that it? Barkley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just looked on the Muppet Witchy. So he's hopping around doing his giant dog thing. He was originally called Woof Woof when he made his debut in episode 1177. Later it'd be renamed Barkley. Debuted in 1978 and continues to be on the show. Bitbird skates by on roller skates. Talks to a little bird on a light pole. Tells the bird, don't worry, little bird. You can stay here as long as you want. Next, we see Telly Monster, who I was never particularly a fan of. To be clear, I don't have anything against Telly Monster. I just, uh, I'm not crazy about Telly Monster. Telly was originally performed by Brian Mule from 1980 to 84, and then Martin P. Robinson from 84 to the present. He's a slightly neurotic young monster who lives at 1304 Sesame Street. He tried to befriend Oscar the Grouch initially. He's a member of Oscar's fan club, the Grouchiteers. They were in sketches together, but uh, over time they kind of switched things up and had him paired with his good friend Baby Bear. Telly Monster has a bunch of aluminum cans and he kind of drops them and makes a big noise. It startles that bird up on the light pole who flies away. Somehow Bidbird trips, maybe he rolls over some of these cans, I'm not sure. Falls down, 
And as he's trying to get up, he's approached by the bird from the boardroom, from the conference room that we saw earlier. Hello, Big, she says. You are Big Bird, are you not? Big Bird's like, yes, I suppose I am. I can't do a Big Bird voice. And then she's like, this is worse than I thought. Big, I'm Miss Finch. So now we know what her name is. Of the feathered friends. Big Bird's like, any feathered friend is a friend of mine. She asks to talk to him. They go to his nest. And she explains that he must be with others of his own kind. He's the only bird here. That's not right. He has to go be with other birds. Because he's all alone. Big Bird's like, well, I'm not alone. There's Gordon. Gordon, at the time of this movie, was played by Roscoe Orman. It's a character that debuted in episode one in 1969. He was played in the test pilot by Garrett Saunders. And then in the actual show, uh, starting in 69 by Matt Robinson for the first three seasons, Hal Miller for seasons four to five, and then Roscoe Orman, as I said, starting in season six. So I believe when I really started watching Sesame Street and could actually remember anything, it would have been Roscoe Orman. Initially, we're told that he is married to Susan. He's working as a history teacher. Later, he becomes a science teacher. We learn over time that he used to be in the military. They have an adopted son named Miles. His sister Olivia lives with them. And he has a nephew named Chris, who appeared in 2007 and became a regular. The character of Gordon was originally conceived as a strong paternal character. This is all from the Muppet Wiki, by the way. A role model for African-American children who lacked a positive father figure at home. But over time, he came to appeal to, to everybody. He's just a likable character. He's friendly and kind, but is also most likely of the Sesame Street adults to offer firm admonishment when required. He's in Follow That Bird, and then also the other feature film, The Adventures of Elmo and Grouchland, in 2004. Gordon also has a recurring alter ego, who we don't see in this film, called Trash Gordon, who appears in bedtime stories told by Oscar to Slimy. Susan was portrayed by Loretta Long. She worked as a nurse. Initially, in 69, she was a housewife having been a nurse, and then later returned to nursing uh, to make her a better role model for young girls in the viewing audience. She was also a mechanic uh, and a singer. She has her own album, Susan Sings Songs from Sesame Street. Hey, Sean, you like uh, interesting albums? Go look for that. Susan Sings Songs from Sesame Street. Uh, that's a message for Sean Courtney, if you're listening, or anybody else who collects albums. Over time, uh, she kind of scaled back as with Gordon, has kind of scaled back her appearances until season 45 when she kind of stopped appearing at all, along with several other human characters. Uh, she did come back for the 50th anniversary, and the nephew, Chris, continues on the show. So, Bitbird's like, well, I'm not alone, because I got Gordon and Susan. And Finch points out, well, they're not birds. Well, they're nice people. Wouldn't you like to have a bird nest with a brother bird and a sister bird and a mother bird and a father bird and play bird games all day long? So Bidbird imagines himself in a cartoon doing all of that, surrounded by birds and playing bird games, which in his mind is like baseball and stuff, including rooting for the St. Louis Cardinals, of course. And he thinks, well, yeah, that sounds pretty great. So uh, Miss Finch is like, well, there's a bird family waiting for you in Ocean View, Illinois. It will shock no one listening when I tell you that Ocean View, Illinois doesn't really exist. So Bidbird's like, well, when can we leave? Meanwhile, by the way, Telly Monster, Susan, and another character who, in my notes, I'm like, is it Teresa? Is it Olivia? I can't remember as I'm reading the notes here which who it was. I think it was actually Olivia. We're just going to go with that because I'm not even sure there is a character named Teresa. Olivia was uh, performed by Elena Reed. 
She was a photographer, first appeared in episode 950, reuniting with her older brother Gordon after having worked in Detroit. She is three years younger than Gordon. She appeared on Sesame Street from 76 to 88, though was occasionally shown in repeated material after that for a while. She performed many songs on Sesame Street and also in this movie. So the humans in Telly are listening to this uh, conversation go down, and Bidbird's like, well, I can't wait to tell my friends. So he goes to find his buddy Snuffleupagus. As a really little kid, I liked Snuffleupagus. As I got older and was probably aging out of Sesame Street, but still clinging to it, I found him a little bit more annoying. Oh, I guess from formality's sake here, he's Mr. Snuffleupagus, not Snuffleupagus. Bidbird, of course, just calls him Snuffy most of the time. He was originally portrayed by Jerry Nelson from 71 to 80, then Michael Earl from 80 to 81, and Martin Robinson from 81 to the present. He is a full-bodied Muppet character who lives with his family in a cave just off of Sesame Street. He looks like kind of like a, a hairy elephant or a woolly mammoth or something. His full name is Aloysius Snuffleupagus, and he is eternally four and a half years old, like a lot of adults that I know. He just calls Bidbird, of course, Bird. Oh, Bird. He was a bit of a controversy, as I recall. Initially, when he appeared, he was, uh, everyone thought he was Bidbird's imaginary friend. Because of coincidences and near misses, Bidbird kept referring to Snuffy, and no, but nobody ever saw him, and they didn't believe that he existed. The other characters sometimes would claim to have their own imaginary friends to kind of sympathize, I guess, with Bidbird. Sometimes the kids could see Mr. Snuffleupagus, sometimes Muppets could see him, but uh, rarely, you know, occasionally the, a celebrity guest, perhaps, but the other human characters on the show never saw him. Over time, though, the writers started running out of ways to keep Snuffy hidden. There was also increasing concern among adults that people, you know, the adults around Bidbird refusing to believe Bidbird that his friend existed might uh, unintentionally be discouraging kids in the audience from sharing important things with their own parents. So eventually they decided to reveal that Snuffy actually exists. So Bidbird goes to tell Snuffy that, you know, that he's going to go live with this bird family. And Snuffy's very sad. And Bird's like, well, I'm not really leaving. I'm just going away for a while. And Snuffy can come visit anytime. So he asks Snuffy to watch his nest and all his stuff. They say goodbye. There's big hugs. Bird goes back to his nest and packs his important things to take with him, including a comb, some swim fins, a, a swim mask, beach ball, a rubber duck, a, a book about birds, I guess. And I think I mentioned the comb. Yeah. All the other uh, adults and, and Muppets and things come by to say goodbye, including uh, the Count. Uh, that would be Count Von Count, who's kind of like a, a Dracula character. He premiered in season four uh, in 1972. He has a compulsive love of counting. Initially portrayed by Jerry Nelson in two, until 2012, and then Matt Vogel uh, from 2013 to the present. It was meant initially to be a parody of Bella Lugosi's portrayal of Count Dracula. He lives in a cobweb-infested castle, which we get to see a little bit of in the movie, and it looks pretty cool. So the Count is there, Grover is there. I was a Grover kid. Grover and Bert and Ernie were my faves, and Kermit, of course. But Kermit really only had cameos on Sesame Street. He was more of a, a Muppet Muppet, not so much the Sesame Street Muppets. Grover was portrayed, of course, by Frank Oz initially from 1970 to 2012, and then Eric Jacobson from 99 to the present. He rarely uses contractions when speaking. He's multi-talented, taking on many different roles and professions. Loves to help people, but is very bad at it. He was a waiter. He was Super Grover. He was Global Grover. He was often in Monsterpiece Theater and Spanish Word of the Day. 
1971 storybook, The Monster at the End of This Book, was a bestseller for Little Golden Books, and I maintain it is the best book ever. We also see Bob, a human character, portrayed by Bob McGrath, debuting in 1969. He's a music teacher. He did many songs on the show, including The People in Your Neighborhood, Believe in Yourself, and I've Got Two. He was Gordon and Susan's neighbor. He is more of a surrogate teacher than a surrogate parent for the Muppets. Rarely disciplines anybody, but he is more of a teacher to the Muppets. Lives in an apartment above Hooper's store. (laughs) Oscar occasionally refers to him as blue eyes, bright eyes, or high tonsils. (laughs) I'm going to start calling people high tonsils just to see how they respond. By season 38, his role had diminished on the show. He appeared in no more than one or two episodes a season. He, along with most of the other human characters, were phased out in the lead-up to season 46 and had his last original appearance in episode 4525 and has only been seen since then in reused material. He has a close romantic relationship with Linda. Interesting. So all of them are there, and they try to persuade Big Bird to stay, but he's like, no, I have to be with my family. We're your family. But he's insistent he's going to go. Don't forget to write. Grover adds, don't forget to breathe. In and out. Cookie Monster uh, also adds, don't forget to eat. Cookie Monster is awesome too, of course. Performed originally by Frank Oz starting in 1969 until 2004. Dave Rudman also took over some of the performing duties starting in 2001 to the present. A voracious monster and one of the main characters on Sesame Street. Covered with blue fur, possessing a pair of googly eyes, and an insatiable appetite. His craving is for cookies, among which is the subject of his signature song, C is for Cookie. But he can, and also does, consume anything and everything, from apples and pie to letters, flatware, hubcaps, on and on. He makes a very distinct, loud munching sound that is often interpreted, interpreted as om nom nom nom. A deep, growly voice generally speaks with simple, simplistic diction. Me want cookie. In 1966, Jim Henson drew three monsters who appeared in a General Foods commercial that featured three crunchy snack foods, wheels, crowns, and flutes. Each snack was represented by a different monster. The wheel stealer was a short, fuzzy monster with wonky eyes and sharply pointed teeth. The flute snatcher was a speed demon with a long, sharp nose and wind-blown hair. The crown grabber was a hulk of a monster with a Boris Karloff accent and teeth that resembled giant knitting needles. They had All three had insatiable appetites for their snack foods, and each time the Muppet narrator, a human-looking fellow, fixes himself a tray of wheels, flutes, and crowns, they disappear before he can eat them. One by one, the monsters sneak in and zoom away with the snacks, and finally the, frustrator gets, uh, the narrator gets frustrated and warns viewers that these pesky monsters could be disguised as someone in your own home, at which point the monsters briefly turn into people, and then dissolve back to monsters again. The commercial never aired, but all three of the monsters eventually would appear in the Muppet cast. The crown grabber was in an Ed Sullivan sketch, the flute snatcher turned into a background monster from the Great Santa Claus Switch, and the Muppet Show. The wheel stealer uh, was in an IBM training film, which also was modified into a sketch for the Ed Sullivan Show, and a similar puppet without the teeth was used for some other commercials, and then went on to Sesame Street as what we now know as Cookie Monster. So Big Bird you know, says goodbye to everybody, including Oscar, and Oscar seems to be a little touched. Well, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. Miss Finch tells Big Bird as they're walking away, don't look back. Oscar looks kind of sad, actually. So they get on a plane. Big Bird, who apparently can't fly, by the way, maybe because he's so big, I don't know. So he's on a plane, alone. I don't know why Miss Finch isn't with him. He's uh, sitting there with his teddy bear, 
who apparently is named Radar, which I have to assume is a nod to MASH, right? Because Radar Riley had a teddy bear. The bear was a gift from Mr. Hooper and is Bidford's most treasured possession. He appeared unnamed as early as episode 1000 in 1977. Makes many other appearances. Bidbird sang a song about him. The stuffed bear was named by Bidbird's performer Carol Spinney as a tribute to actor Gary Berghoff, who played Walter Radar O'Reilly on MASH. The two met at a taping of Hollywood Squares, and the bear's name is Dual Tribute, reflecting Berghoff's Radar character, who brought a character who brought a teddy bear to Korea, and the fact that in his private life, Berghoff is known as a painter of birds and an activist for bird preservation. In episode 5001, Little Bird's teddy bear is named Walter, another reference to the MASH character. So, Bidbird and Radar are on the plane. You know, they're, they're looking out the window. They're saying goodbye to Sesame Street. Snuffy is down on the ground waving at the plane with his trunk. Goodbye, Bidbird. Don't forget, I'm coming to visit. I can't do a Snuffy voice either. So now they travel by map, as the Muppets do in the movie, The Muppets, and as Indiana Jones does in all his movies. And they soon arrive in Ocean View, Illinois. At the airport, there's a family of four tall Muppety birds standing there. Bidbird disembarks, and they asked Bidbird if he has seen a big yellow bird on the plane. Bidbird's like, just me? And these other birds are like, oh, that's too bad. Maybe he's on the next plane. Bidbird's like, hey, are you the Dodos? Turns out that they're Dodo birds. Daddy Dodo, Mommy Dodo, Donnie, and Marie. Dodo birds are an extinct flightless bird endemic to the island of Mauritius, uh, east of Madagascar in the Indian Ocean. Their closest relative was the also extinct and flightless, Rodrigue's solitaire. What we know about them basically comes from written accounts and drawings. Don't know a lot about their behavior, but they've been depicted with brownish-gray plumage, yellow feet, a fluff of tail feathers, gray naked head, and a black, yellow, and green beak. They've historically been portrayed as being fat and clumsy, but it is now thought to have been well adapted for its ecosystem. Basically, lived on an island until the humans came along, nothing really hunted it. It didn't have to fly, didn't have to go anywhere. So it just kind of hung around and ate. The kids in the Dodo family being named Donnie and Marie is clearly a reference to Donnie Osmond and his sister Marie Osmond, who had a variety show in the 70s on ABC. Donnie had originally been popular as part of a group called the Osmonds with his brothers. Marie was one of the youngest singers to reach number one on the Billboard country music charts with a song called Paper Roses. So they did this 1970s variety show where they sang their songs, they did cheesy skits, stuff like that. And they've sort of been a punchline ever since then. So the confusion is cleared up. They decide that they are going to call Big Bird Big Dodo. Big Bird turns to the camera and is like, Big Dodo? Cut to this new Dodo family pulling up to their house. It's a big, tall, thin, birdhouse-looking thing. Big Bird's head sticks out of the sunroof of the car. He's kind of checking things out. It's a big, thin, pink house, like I said. The Dodos kind of stumble out of the car, and they're kind of stumbling around, doing the, the big, you know, pratfall kind of thing. Bidbird's taking this all in. He's not really sure what to make of this. Back on Sesame Street, Snuffy is sitting on Bidbird's nest, kind of proud of himself for keeping an eye on Bidbird's stuff. He's been there all night. He's going to, you know, fulfill his promise. A letter arrives. I don't know how much time has passed, but the humans have already gotten a letter from Bidbird. And they all kind of gather around. They're all very excited. Even Oscar's kind of excited. And Maria, I believe, is the one who's reading the letter. Portrayed on Sesame Street by Sonia Manzano. First appeared in 1971, arriving as a Puerto Rican teenager who took a job at the library, which later became the Fix-It Shop. 
She often mediates disputes among the Muppet characters, sometimes becoming flustered by their chaotic nature. She also, for a number of seasons, appeared regularly in pantomime skits as Charlie Chaplin's The Tramp. I kind of remember that. I don't remember why they did this, but I do remember that. She had a romantic, romantic relationship with David for a time in the 70s, but married Luis in 1988, becoming Maria Rodriguez. Later, her pregnancy became a storyline for the show, and Maria and Luis had a daughter, Gabby, in 1989. Maria Manzano commented in 1987 on how her character had changed since debut. Quote, I wouldn't even tweeze my eyebrows then. Okay. In 2015, Manzano retired from Sesame Street. Season 45 was the last to feature Maria as a recurring character, though she did reprise the role in 2019 in the special Sesame Street's 50th anniversary celebration and in the 2020 CNN Town Hall special, Coming Together, Standing Up to Racism. So Maria reads Bidbird's letter, and essentially what it says is, the Dodos are a nice family, they live in a birdhouse with a nice lawn, they spend a lot of time looking for worms, never find any, but they like to look. They have a lawnmower that they don't know how to use, and they like to stay in shape, which is really just an excuse. And while Maria's reading, we're seeing a montage of the Dodos doing all these different things. It's a riding lawnmower, uh, there's a bit of a recurring gag about the lawn, uh, the lawnmower getting loose on its own and kind of driving itself. Mm. The staying shape thing is really just an excuse, I guess, in the movie to throw in a, a scene of them doing aerobics to a video. TV aerobics was a thing back then. The Olivia Newton-John, let's get physical thing, uh, all of that. Um, so there's a clip of that, the, the dodos goofing around doing aerobics, stuff like that. So, Bidbird's letter continues, you know, after their workout, they like to take a dip in the pool, which is just sort of this pool set up in the backyard. Bidbird thinks that's kind of fun. They're running out there to get in the pool just as the riderless lawnmower comes and tries to take them out. It's all very goofy, fun stuff. Until the last line of the letter, when Maria's reading, and she's like reading what Bidbird wrote, I should be happy here. What's wrong with me? Signed, Big Dodo. Bidbird, to you. So everyone on Sesame Street has a sad at uh, this sad ending of the letter. and Snuffy decides, I know, I'll tell him it's time for a visit. Back at the Dodo's house, Bidbird tries to get uh, everybody to play a, a make-believe game. But all Daddy Dodo and Mommy Dodo can come up with is, I'm Daddy and I'm Mommy. And they're like, oh boy, this is fun. Postman arrives with a giant postcard, because of course it's from the giant Snuffleupagus, and the mailman comments, boy, I hope he's not going to send any packages. Bidbird reads the card, and tells the Dodos that his best friend's going to come visit. And they kind of laugh, and they're like, that's silly, your best friend should be a bird. You need to make some new best friends. Let's go hunt worms. Bird kind of puts his foot down. Well, if Snuffy can't come visit, then I want to go home. Mommy Dodo's like, well, you are home. Bird's kind of had it at this point. So that night, he sneaks out back at Hooper's store, which is on Sesame Street between what has traditionally been the fix-it shop and the yard. Early on, it was a candy store and functions largely as a lunch counter and general store. At one point, it also has a newsstand. When I was a kid watching the show, it, it had the newsstand. Residents of Sesame Street visit Hooper's regularly, including Bid Bird, who often drops by for a bird seed milkshake. The store is run by Mr. Hooper, at least it was initially, a kindly older guy who uh, Bid Bird really, really liked. The store was redesigned a number of times over the years. Whenever I catch a glimpse of modern Sesame Street, the store doesn't look anything like I remember when I watched the show. So everyone's hanging around at Hooper's store watching television where Chevy Chase, for those who don't know, a comic actor and one of the early stars of Saturday Night Live, where he did a a recurring sketch, he hosted Weekend Update. 
So in his weekend update persona, he is reading the news on TV. And he's reading about a six-year-old runaway eight-foot-tall bird who answers to the name Bidbird. Grover's hearing this. He's like, did you say Bidbird? And Chase, as if responding through the TV, that's right, Bidbird. He goes on to read the news. Bidbird left Ocean View, Illinois last night and is reportedly headed east towards some place called Sesame Street. Grover's like, Sesame Street? Chase looks off camera at his producer or something. Sesame Street. Sorry. Now here's our correspondent, Kermit the Frog. He throws it over to Kermit in his reporter outfit that we know from Sesame Street. And he is not realizing he's on camera. He's talking to someone off camera as well. Okay, now here's one. Why does the chicken not cross the road? Because it's chicken. Get it? And he realizes he's on camera. Oh, here's to uh, here's the thank you note that Bidbird left for the dodos. I should be at Sesame Street in three hours since it took two hours to fly here. If anyone calls, you know where to reach me. So Bert and Ernie back at their apartment are watching this on television as well. I was a big Bert and Ernie kid. Bert was performed by Frank Oz from, 90, from 69 to 2006 and Eric Jacobson from 99 to the present, Ernie's best friend and roommate. They share the basement apartment at 123 Sesame Street. In contrast to the practical, joking, extroverted Ernie, Bert is serious, studious, and tries to make sense of his friend's actions. He likes reading boring stories, collecting paper clips and bottle caps, eating oatmeal, and studying pigeons. Bert has a pet pigeon named Bernice and is president of the National Association of W Lovers. He has a distinctive bleating laugh. Bert has not been seen without Ernie as often as Ernie has been seen without Bert. Bert and Ernie were the only Muppets to appear in the Sesame Street pilot episodes and also hosted This Way to Sesame Street, a special sneak preview special promoting Sesame Street. Ernie was performed by Jim Henson from 69 to 90, Steve Whitmer from 93 to 2014, Billy Barkhurst from 2014 to 2017, and Peter Linz from 2017 to the present. Ernie, uh, in the comic duo of Bert and Ernie, is the naive troublemaker. Bert is the world-weary foil. Ernie is well known for his fondness for bubble baths, his rubber ducky, trying to learn to play the saxophone. Ernie is also known for keeping Bert awake at night for reasons such as wanting to play the drums, wanting to count something, like sheep, observe something like a blackout, or even because he is waiting for his upstairs neighbor to drop his shoes. He has a distinctive snickering laugh, and many of the er Bert and Ernie sketches involve Ernie interrupting Bert in the middle of one of his hobbies. So Bert and Ernie, one of the cool things about this scene, Bert and Ernie watching TV, is you actually see their legs. Uh, Of course, because these are all puppets, spoiler, um, being performed by human performers, you don't see the bottom of the Muppet of the puppet because that's where the human is. But in this scene, you do. Because the way it's set up, they're sitting in chairs and uh, obviously the, the Muppeteer is down inside the chair operating the puppet. But it's just kind of cool that they decided to, they made this choice to uh, be able to see the legs. Kermit on TV is interviewing the Dodos. And they're like, are we on television? I never thought I'd make the big time. Let's go inside and watch. So they run inside to watch themselves on live TV. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I can't do a Kermit voice. The Dodos. And uh, they certainly are. Count Von Count is watching in his castle. I mentioned Count earlier. Now Kermit interviews Miss Finch. Why do you think you ran away? Do you think maybe he didn't like it here? Miss Finch is like, impossible. I'm going to find him and bring him back where he belongs. We hear a little bit of menace in her voice, a little bit of menacing uh, music underneath. Uh, she drives away in a van. We cut to Bidbird and Radar on the road. Bidbird stops in a mailbox. 
he mails Radar back to Sesame Street on the the idea that they need to split up and, and throw Miss Finch off the track. I thought maybe Radar being mailed to Sesame Street was going to have more of a plot point than it really does, but I think it's probably just a, an excuse to not have to keep dealing with the teddy bear in all the Bid Bird scenes. Miss Finch rolls up to the mailbox just after Bid Bird walks away, but again, teddy bear doesn't really figure into anything. More it's just the idea that that she is indeed on his trail. Back at Hooper's store, Bob is showing everyone a map. He's going to kind of stay behind as sort of the uh, the tracker. Got a bid map up on the wall. He's got a kid whose name I think is Adrian, kind of helping him out. They got little drawings of cars on the map, and they've got it all worked out. Linda and Gordon are going to go in the Volkswagen. Maria and Oscar and Telly, I think, are going to stick together in the Grouchmobile. Stick with me, skinny, Oscar says. And... And then another car, the Count, I guess, is going to go in his car, which is very cool looking. And Bert and Ernie are going to fly. Bob asks, are there any questions? And Oscar's like, yes. What is the capital of South Dakota? Everyone kind of groans. Bob's like, look, Oscar, you don't have to go if you don't want to. No, I love wild goose chases. Super Grover takes off in his Super Grover persona. Bert to Ernie is like, are you sure you know how to fly a plane? Ernie's like, trust me. And they climb into a biplane uh, and take off. Maybe it's a single wing. I don't know. Everyone on the street is cheering the procession of vehicles as they're taking off to go find Bidbird. Cut to Bidbird somewhere in Indiana, uh, where he walks past a turkey farm and asks for a ride. The farmer, who is portrayed by Waylon Jennings, Bidbird asks him if he can get a ride. And uh, Jennings is like, this here's a turkey truck. Bidbird's like, well, my friend Oscar says I'm a big turkey. Well, can't argue with that. Bidbird says, uh, so they climb into the truck and they drive, and Bidbird's like, it's a three-hour walk back home to Sesame Street. Jennings is like, more like three weeks. Bidbird's like, oh, I'll never get there. So then Jennings starts singing an inspirational song. I'm not sure what the title is, uh, but basically the song is like filled with lines like, there ain't no road too long, and it goes kind of like this. I found out a long time ago Gotta learn to say yes when life says no Don't dwell on the bad times once they're past That kind of thing can get you nowhere fast Cause there ain't no mountain you can't climb If you hang on tight and just make up your mind Once you set your heart to moving on Son, there ain't no road too long. We get sort of a, a, a montage, a duet thing going. There's more than two people, so it's not a duet. Anyway, Gordon and Olivia and Grover are singing the song. The Count is singing along as he counts the telephone poles. Maria and Oscar drive through a cornfield. Oscar's like, well, I never promised you a road. Up in the plane, Ernie's flying, and he's like, hey, Bert. Remember what color Bidbird is? Ha ha ha. Bidbird, uh, back in the truck, is like, Okay, if I just keep going, everything will turn out fine. Whalen has inspired him. Cut to Doug McKenzie, uh, Dave Thomas, at the, I think it's called the Sleaze Brothers Fun Fair. He's reading the newspaper, and he tells his brother, People would pay big money to see that bird. If we find that bird, we could hit the big time. His brother, whose name I don't know, is like, Well, how are we going to catch him? I guess I'll just have to use my brain, which I guess is a punchline. Back in the uh, turkey truck, the farmer drops Bidbird off at a, basically at a fork in the road where there's, it's actually more than a fork. There's several different directions. 
Uh, the farmer wishes him well. Waylon Jennings drives off. Bidbird's trying to decide which way to go. He sees a sign that says, no through road, and decides, well, that must be the way to go. I don't know why. I thought typically no through road meant dead end, but for some reason, Bidbird decides that this is the way to go. So he starts walking. After a while, he's like, wow, no through road sure is long. So now he comes to a house with a, a well in the front and pretty flowers and stuff like that, and he hears chickens clucking. He's like, well, maybe they'll invite me to dinner. A short time later, two kids who live at this house see Big Bird pecking away at chicken seed, at bird seed in the uh, chicken coop. The kids don't ever actually have names. So the boy kid, uh, one of them, I don't remember if it's the boy kid or the girl kid, says, you're the biggest chicken I've ever seen. Bird, Bird explains to him who he is, what he's doing. They offer to let him stay in the barn for the night and ask you know, if he'll stay and play with us you know, tomorrow. And he's like, well, I haven't played for a while, so maybe just for a little bit. They get them all settled in the barn. They go to bed. Big Bird looks up the stars through the skylight or whatever, sings a little song, and out on the road, Gordon and the others are coincidentally singing the exact same song. Snuffy back on Sesame Street is singing it. It's all very tugs at the heartstrings about you know wanting to be home and together and stuff like that. Bidbird's like, gee, I wish Olivia was here to sing me a lullaby and Snuffy to read me a story. And then they do a nice little duet, just uh, keep saying a duet. A nice little song with the three of them, together but separate. Cut to Maria and Oscar pulling up to a place called the Don't Drop In Motel, advertising bad eats. It reminds me a bit, because I watched it long, not long ago, it reminds me of the, uh, the Braidwood Inn, which is a motel, not a restaurant, in planes, trains, and automobiles. They roll up to this place, and Maria's like, I'm so hungry, let's go someplace else. Oscar's like, no way. We had lunch at Friendly's. Now it's my turn. Turns out there really are restaurants called Friendly's. According to Wikipedia, Friendly's is a restaurant chain on the East Coast of the United States. They sell ice cream cones, dinner-style cuisine. They have takeout. If anyone has ever been to a Friendly's and you want to and you want to share your experience, please do. But it created a nice opportunity for Oscar to make a joke about how he had to eat at a place called Friendly's. Maria decides, well, I guess I could use the phone at least. Uh, Telly is getting kind of tired of grouches. Oscar promises everybody an unbelievable dining experience. Cut to the inside of the Don't Drop In restaurant. And we see toast exploding out of a toaster. We see coffee pots exploding. Sandra Bernhardt is the waitress. Sandra Bernhardt is an American actress, comedian, and singer who first uh, became known as a stand-up comedian. She probably is best known for playing a character on Roseanne, starting in the fourth season in 1991 until the end of the show in 97. She was also on a show called Pose, which I'm not familiar with, and is number 96 on Comedy Central's list of the 100 greatest stand-ups of all time. So in this movie, she's playing the waitress. She delivers to Oscar a plate of bad spaghetti with maple syrup. Maria's reading the menu, and it's got things on it like Meatloaf with marshmallow sauce, cream of garlic soup with maraschino cherries, and she's getting more and more repulsed by what she's reading. Finally, she settles on a tossed salad, deciding, well, that sounds safe. Oscar says, well, that sounds good. Make it two. Sandra yells back to the kitchen, two tossed salads, and lettuce is immediately catapulted across the room at them. It keeps coming. I guess other people ordered tossed salads, too. And lettuce is flying. There's a food fight. Uh, lettuce is raining down on everybody. It's uh, just chaos. Cut to the farm. Now it's the next morning. 
Big Bird awakens to the crowing of a rooster, goes outside the barn, sees the kids out there again. They're filling a water can with a, a you know, one of those water pump things out in the yard. Everyone sings a song about what a wonderful day it's going to be. There's a montage of the three of them, you know, running around, playing games, and everything looks pretty good. But then we cut to Miss Finch out by the no-through road sign where she sees a little yellow feather. Aha, that must be where he's going. Hops back in her truck and starts heading down the no-through road, which again, I think just means a dead end. The kids and Bidbird, unaware of this, uh, keep singing their little song. They're having a good time. But then Finch spots them and honks her horn. Bidbird freaks. What'll I do? The kids tell him, head toward the hayfield. He takes off running. Finch rolls up on the kids. Where did the big yellow bird go? And the kids are like, I don't know. Finch, I guess on a hunch, heads into the hayfield, which basically is just a big field with huge mounds of hay. She's walking around. Where are you? Where are you, big bird? Behind her, we see one of the hay mounds keeps moving. Cut to the Sleaze brothers, Doug McKenzie and his brother, driving along in their truck, and the brother is hanging out the, the passenger side window with a big net, like a big uh, fishing net. The idea is that uh, they're going to roll up on Big Bird and scoop him up in the net, I guess. And they see a walking haystack. Doug McKenzie's like, we're not looking for a walking haystack. Keep your eyes peeled. We're looking for Big Bird. He's got to be around here somewhere. Sometime later, Big Bird evidently has given Miss Finch the slip. He's walking along. There's no sign of Sesame Street. Nothing but amber waves of grain. That, of course, is a reference to the line in America the Beautiful, a patriotic American song written by Catherine Lee Bates, originally written as a poem called Pike's Peak, and first published in the 4th of July 19, or 1895 edition of the church periodical The Congregationalist, with the title America at that time. O beautiful for halcyon skies, at least in the original 1893 poem, O beautiful for halcyon skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountains majesties above the enameled plain. The 1904 version, O beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, the 1911 version, Oh Beautiful for Spacious Skies for Amber Waves of Grain, and the rest is history. Bidbird's like, I wish Snuffy was here, then I'd be lost with my best friend. And he imagines Snuffy being there, and he talks to imaginary Snuffy. It's so good to almost see you. It's sort of a, a fuzzy image. I suppose a hug is out of the question. They try to do an imaginary hug, but they keep missing each other, because Snuffy isn't really there. He eventually fades away, Bert and Ernie fly over, and... Bert spots Bidbird. It's like, Ernie, I see him. Do something so that he knows that we're here. Ernie's like, okay, hang on. And they strafe Bidbird uh, in this cornfield that he's walking through. I wondered perhaps if this was a nod for the adults watching to the 1959 Hitchcock film, North by Northwest, where I think there's a scene of Cary Grant, who is an innocent man pursued across the United States by agents of a mysterious organization trying to prevent him from blocking their plan to smuggle a microfilm which contains government secrets out of the country. And I think there's a scene in there where Cary Grant is running through a cornfield and he's being chased by a plane. Yeah, it's a crop duster that's chasing him through this field. Isn't necessarily a cornfield, I guess. But I think maybe this is a, a nod to that. Good film, I should go watch that. So Ernie, to attract Bidbird's attention, starts flying the plane upside down. Something I read earlier said that the Muppet performers were actually hanging upside down to do this bit. It wasn't like... Um, you know, they filmed it and then turned the, the film upside down or whatever. No, they were actually upside down. 
Ernie starts singing a song about flying upside down. Lines like, upside down shoes on their upside down feet. Uh, Bert is not enjoying this. I don't feel too good. And then suddenly, oh no, his bottle cap collection starts raining down out of the plane because they're hanging upside down. Ernie's like, hey Bert, want to take the controls? Big Bird, uh, Big Bird down on the ground sees bottle caps laying on the ground and his first thought is not, hey, bottle caps. He thinks, a hailstorm? So Bert, who reluctantly has been pushed into taking the controls of the plane, is starting to get into it. Now he's singing the song about flying and what fun it is. Ernie, though, is now being serious. No time for fun. We have to find Bidbird. And you lost him. I lost him? Yeah, while you were singing. They argue about this some more. Cut to Super Rover, who's kind of tired from all his flying, but he spots Gordon's car, the little yellow car, down in the car. And, he, and I think for a moment he thinks maybe it's Bidbird? I'm not sure. Down in the car, Gordon is telling Cookie Monster, if you gotta eat, go into Linda's luggage and find something. She's all offended. I don't know if I mentioned... Gordon's car, but throughout the movie, there's a running gag of Cookie Monster eating things off of the car. Like, literally, you know, car seats, and hubcaps, and pieces of the hood, and the roof. Did I mention Linda earlier? If not, I'll do it now. Um, she's a librarian, introduced in episode 243 from season 2. Uh, she was a regular through season 33, initially introduced as an actor for the National Theater of the Deaf, mirroring her real-life role. She moved to Sesame Street in, two, in 326 and became a librarian in 1868, mirroring her real-life degree in library science. Linda is deaf, as is the performer, which allowed the producers to teach viewers about sign language and address issues faced by the deaf. Her segments and appearances often focused on American Sign Language, and she was also in several sketches with other human cast members and appeared in several Maria as Chaplin skits. She and Bob had a romantic relationship, for a time, Linda was the owner of Barkley the dog, who could understand ASL. Linda no longer appears on the show, but some of her archive segments were used after her departure. She also made a return appearance for the 50th anniversary. Super Grover crashes into the car through a hole in a roof that Cookie Monster has created, and he's all upset. He's like, you're not Big Bird, you're an imposter. Doug McKenzie and his brother, the Sleaze Brothers, I guess, spot the actual Big Bird and prepare to scoop him up in their net, but he ducks. Just the, at just the right moment, and they keep driving. Why they couldn't just turn around, I don't know. The, the brothers bicker a little bit. He's eight feet tall. How could you miss him? You were driving too fast. Stuff like that. Meanwhile, Maria and Oscar in the Grouchmobile roll into a car junkyard. Maria tells Oscar, I want you to turn the car around right now and head for Toadstool, which is a town that they're going to. I don't know how they've decided to go to Toadstool, but she's very insistent. Oscar's like, ah, an angry face in a beautiful place. Back at Hooper's store, Bob and Adrian are tracking the progress of their friends on their map. Bitbird and the Sleaze Brothers also arrive in Toadstool. Again, I may have missed something, but somehow they all know that this is where they got to go. It happens that on this day, the annual Tournament of Mushrooms Parade is happening, and Finch spots Bitbird. She also has arrived. Bitbird tries to run and ends up in the parade himself. Olivia also spots Bitbird, and Finch, on foot is walking along the sidewalk, tracking Bidbird as Bidbird walks in the parade. Oscar and Maria arrive. Oscar declares that he hates parades, and they sort of unwittingly are following Miss Finch as well. Bidbird arrives at the Sleaze Brothers Fun Fair and asks the brothers if he can hide there. Doug McKenzie is like, Well, sure, we have the perfect place. Over here in our hiding cage. You'll be real safe there. 
Bidbird's like, this is great. And he hops in the cage, they slam the door shut, and the cage is sitting on a trailer, and they drive away. Or actually, they, they just back it into a tent and close the flaps of the tent so no one can see it. All Bidbird's friends drive by unaware. A couple minutes later, Bidbird kind of sticks his head through the bars of the cage. and's like, okay, is it safe now? Doug McKenzie's like, what's the matter? Don't you like your cage? Bidbird's like, my cage? He kind of realizes what's going on. Let me out right now. The brothers kind of laugh. That night, they open their new show, The Blue Bird of Happiness. The audience is filled with kids, ready to see the show, and we see Bidbird still in his cage, and he's, his feathers have been dyed blue, with the exception of a few on his tail. I'm not really sure why. They are expecting him to sing this really fun song. Instead, he sings this very sad song about the familiar place he longs to see. The other sleaze brother operating the spotlight is kind of touched. He's getting teary-eyed at this, but Doug McKenzie's just sitting in the back counting his cash. A couple of kids who, I'm not sure if they were the same kids from the farm or not, honestly, but a couple of kids sneak backstage after the song and uh, asked Bidbird if he's real. Bidbird lets out a single blue tear, which is very sad, and asks them to please call Mr. Looper's store. He always called Mr. Hooper, Mr. Looper, on Sesame Street and tell somebody where I am. Doug McKenzie sees the kids, shoes them away, go away kid. The kids go to a payphone, they call the operator. Hello, operator, can you tell me how to get to Sesame Street? That's a little joke there. Cut to a gas station where Gordon tells Cookie Monster, haven't you had enough? As Cookie Monster's eating the hood. Me a growing monster. Maria calls back to Hooper's store. Bob says that some kids called here and said Bitbird is blue now and in a carnival. Maria's very confused. Ernie and Bert stake out the carnival. What do you see, Ernie? Your nose, Bert. As he's looking at Bert through binoculars. Inside the carnival, Doug McKenzie is, has fallen asleep on a pile of cash. Maria tiptoes past the sleeping Doug McKenzie, gently wakes Big Bird up and hushes him, you know, tells him to be quiet. Cookie Monster approaches the other brother, who's sleeping next to some cookies, because he's preoccupied with that. Linda tries to liberate the cage keys from Doug McKenzie, but Doug has a, a firm grasp on the uh, key ring, until Linda tickles his nose with a dollar bill, he drops the keys, as Maria, I think it's Maria, is trying the different keys in the lock, the count is counting. The first key, ha uh, ha uh, uh. the second key, ah. Uh. Grover decides this is a job for Super Grover and tries to bend the bars, which doesn't work. Doug McKenzie awakens uh, to see what's going on, then awakens his brother, and are kind of watching this for a moment. Then they quick go hop in the, the cab of the truck and drive Bidbird in his cage away before the others can get the cage open. So everybody else runs to their cars. And a chase ensues. Somehow, as the truck drives away, I don't know if maybe the, the key was still in the lock or something, the cage door opens on its own. Gordon, in the little yellow Volkswagen, and Olivia are right behind the truck. So Olivia's driving. Gordon climbs through the hole in the roof, out onto the hood, or what's left of the hood, of the car, and they get up right behind the truck. In the truck, the brothers are still chatting. They're like... You know, they're gonna what they're gonna do for the next big show. They're gonna teach Bidbird to break dance, apparently. Gordon is trying to convince since the cage door's open, he's trying to convince Bidbird to, to jump out of the cage onto the hood of the car. Bidbird's like, No, I shouldn't be doing this. You should never stand up in a moving truck. Gordon's like remember earlier I said Gordon's is sort of the uh the disciplinarian, but uh he's frustrated at the moment because he's trying to rescue Bidbird. So he's like, Look, you have my permission. So Bidbird Takes a running start a couple of times, but he, he just can't, ugh, he can't do it. And finally he does. And this is where I really got a good glimpse that for some reason his tail feathers are still yellow. I don't know why. 
So now he's jumped out of the cage, he's on the hood of the car, and they're making their getaway. Meanwhile, a motorcycle cop pulls over the truck, and the cop is portrayed by legendary John Candy, who I just watched not that long ago in uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Canadian actor and comedian, best known for um, his work on Second City and the SCTV sketch comedy series. He made a lot of iconic comedy films in the 80s. Stripes, Splash, Brewster's Millions, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Spaceballs, The Great Outdoors, Uncle Buck, Cool Runnings in 93. And had supporting roles in uh, other big films. Blues Brothers, National Lampoon's Vacation, Little Shop of Horrors, Home Alone, and uh, also a couple of dramatic roles, Only the Lonely and uh, JFK. He was really young when he died. He, he passed away in 94, and he was only 43. So he has a bit part in this film as the motorcycle cop, and he has with him one of the two farm kids in the sidecar. And he's like, are these the men? The kid's like, yep. So he ends up arresting the Sleaze Brothers for forgery, I'm not sure where that comes from, and bird napping. So now everybody's back on Sesame Street. Everyone is cheering. The honkers are there. I always like those characters. They debuted in 1980. They are fuzzy creatures who communicate by honking their bulbous noses. They come in a variety of colors. Baby honkers are hatched from eggs. Doesn't know how closely related, if at all, they are to the dingers, but they have a lot of similarities. Native to the land of honk, they never speak. Their performers vary, and they feature in the film. Follow that bird. Bidbird tells the kids about the exciting time he had on the farm and the nice kids that he met. And suddenly there was, and he glances up and sees Miss Finch. Miss Finch is like, the dodos weren't right for you, but I have another family. All the other uh, humans on Sesame Street jump in. He already has a family. Finch is like, he needs to be with his own kind. Maria's like, well, we've got all kinds here. The camera kind of does a 360 around the group as Maria describes who's there. We've got honkers and people and cows, and monsters. Finch is kind of taking this all in. She's like, and you're all happy? And there's a resounding yes from the group, of course. Well, you're kind people to look for him, and you must care about him. Oh, all right, big. Sesame Street is your home. Case dismissed. They never really explain why these social workers at Feathered Friends, which evidently is some sort of private organization, ever finds out about Big Bird or takes an interest in him, but whatever the reason, the case is now closed. So Bidbird's like, I wonder where Snuffy is, and he excuses himself and goes into where his nest is, and Snuffy is there dozing, but at his post, big hugs, uh, everybody's happy there. The only one who hasn't arrived yet is Gordon and Olivia, or, or Gordon, and uh, anyway, and his car, and Louise is talking to Olivia, and it's like, I hope there's nothing seriously wrong with your car. At that moment, Gordon pushes what's left of the car, onto Sesame Street. The doors are gone, the hood's gone, the roof's gone. And everyone's like, what happened? Gordon's like, what happened? Don't ask me, ask him, pointing to Cookie Monster. And then a tall human-operated, human, life-size Muppet thing, the Garbage Man, I didn't quite catch what his name was, but it's a character I've seen before. Is it, is it Bruno? That doesn't quite sound right. Oh, yes it is. Bruno the Trash Man, performed by Carol Spinney, debuted in 1979. He appears, and he picks up the garbage can and walks around the block at Oscar's instruction. Wants to walk him around the block to walk off some of this happy stuff, which is interesting because, of course, Oscar was also portrayed by Carol Spinney. I don't think I mentioned that earlier. I don't think I said anything about Oscar earlier. Oscar debuted in 1969. 
portrayed by Carol Spinney until 2018, and then Eric Jacobson. He was originally purple. He was originally designed to be purple. He was originally orange on the show, and then sometime in the 70s became green. He lives in a trash can. He loves trash so much that he's rarely seen outside of his trash can. His trademark song explaining his passion for refuse is, I love trash. His mission in life is to be as miserable and grouchy as possible. Um, of course, like a lot of people, I was a big Oscar kid. Oscar walks away with Bruno the Trash Man. Everybody's happy except Oscar. And we start to fade to the credits. But then suddenly Count Von Count appears. Don't leave. My favorite part is here. Counting the credits. And he does. Uh, one by one, he names off many of the people that I mentioned earlier. Director Ken Quapus, the writers, the producers. And then we go into main credits. And that's it. That's the end of the movie. Like I said, not a lot to make fun of because the movie is just fun to watch. It's a movie for little kids. But once in a while, there's a little joke for the older kids in there, right? The, the North by Northwest reference, stuff like that. Uh, I had a good time. And uh, it's a nice way to spend the holiday season, uh, even though it's not a holiday movie. So that was it. That was my, uh, my little holiday Atari Bites film tying back to the Atari Sesame Street games that we've played. If you guys want to weigh in on this film or Sesame Street or anything else, you know what to do, right? Email me at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com and, uh, and share those thoughts with us. And uh, there's other ways to contact us too, which I'll talk about at the end of the show, which is coming up not too long from right now. Let's have some fun. Let's invite our friends to a Polynesian winding. If you've ever been to a used record shop, estate sale, or a Goodwill store, you've likely seen them. Records of motivational speeches, instructions on how to set up your state-of-the-art 1972 stereo system, gospel quartets that inexplicably have five members, and learning to belly dance. Forward, right, backward, left. Who buys this stuff, you've undoubtedly asked? Well... To answer your question, I buy this stuff. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. I'm Sean, and I have a weird record collection. If you've ever had the slightest curiosity about these vinyl oddities, but weren't curious enough to part with your money, have I got great news for you. I parted with my money so you don't have to part with yours. My Weird Record Collection is a podcast that discusses these interesting albums, complete with samples and, whenever possible, the history behind these wonders of wax. While I'm at it, I'll also go over some general record collecting tips and tricks with you along this crazy journey. Keep an eye out on your favorite podcast provider starting in January 2024. In the meantime, you can follow me on the various social media platforms under the handle My Weird Records or search for My Weird Record Collection on Facebook. So subscribe to My Weird Record Collection. It's sure to get a million downloads in January. And exaggerate your mouth movements. And that's our show. Thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, Pinball Spring, and Hidden Agenda. Thanks to Sean Courtney for the Storytime theme. Leave a five-star review of this show at Apple Podcasts, especially, and pretty much anywhere that you can leave a review. Email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on our Facebook page. Check us out on Instagram. I am on 
the former Twitter still, though I don't really know why. I'm also on as Carnival of Glee or Atari Bytes over there. I'm also Carnival of Glee many other places. Uh, Atari Bytes is on Threads. Carnival of Glee is on Blue Sky, Hive, Mastodon, Tumblr, Spoutable. I'm trying to be everywhere, pretty much. I just love you guys so much. I want to be everywhere that you guys are. So uh, wave at me at any of those places. You can call us too, 563-293-6212, and leave me a voicemail about just about anything, and I will play it on the show whenever the next episode is. Check out the website, carnivalofgleecreations.com, where you're going to find out more about this podcast. You're going to find out about my other podcast. It's a podcast, Charlie Brown. You can find out about books that I've written, including places that you can buy them. Not an exhaustive list, but some of the places that you can buy them, and other stuff I've been up to. So do go check that out. Please consider supporting the show. I do occasionally put on an episode, and I would appreciate your assistance. You can do that at the Atari Bytes page over on Patreon.com, where if you do so, you'll join an exclusive club of awesome people, which includes Michael Tyler, Jose Gazeta, Sean Courtney, Jim Goble, Robert Ferguson, and David Cavallari. Fine folks, all one and all. All right, well, we're just about done here for 2023. Got to go wrap some Christmas presents. Um, time's running out, you know. I uh, got to wrap the presents. Got to set the trap for Santa. I, I, I mean, put out milk and cookies for Santa. Desperately try to think of something to get for my wife for Christmas. Um, try to remember the names of the kids so I can put them on the packages. You know, a, a lot of work to be done here uh, in these remaining hours of Christmas Eve. But next time on Atari Bites. I don't know. As I said uh, earlier in the episode, I'm not ready to resume a regular schedule yet. I would guess the next episode will be a game of some sort. I just don't know what. If you guys have thoughts about what you would like to hear in my next episode, uh, and you want to share those, I will you know, share it with the production team. And you know, we'll see what happens. I appreciate you guys hanging in during this hiatus and coming back. Maybe during this time you've told a few other people about this podcast. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I, I hope you all have a happy and wonderful holiday season, whatever that means to you, and that until next time, whenever that is, you go play some old games. They've missed you.